Psalm chapter 15. This psalm begins with a question. And for those of you who have been with us over the last few weeks and months even, um, you've seen a pattern of that. Psalm 13 starts with a question. Psalm 11 starts with a question. Psalm 10 starts with a question. Psalm 6 starts with a question. And, and I have found that the key to counseling others is asking the right questions. With the right question, you can just illuminate a person's mind and help them to see something that they couldn't see before. I've also found, conversely, just telling them something can sometimes be the biggest way to turn a person off and to allow them to dig in and entrench in a bad idea. But by questioning and asking clarifying questions, you can begin to challenge their assumptions and challenge what they believe. The right question can unlock a person's past. And all of a sudden, they can begin to make a connection between what happened to them when they were younger to how they're behaving today. And this week, the psalmist is going to ask one of the most important questions that any one of us can ask. Basically, what must one do to dwell with God? And when you think about it, all the other question in, questions in life are really not as important as this question. Right? When, when you're asking, as, as our culture often does, how, how do I lose weight? You know, that's not going to matter anymore when you die. <laughs> or, or how do I invest my money the best way to have the best retirement? Again, that question it's not going to matter a whole lot. Those are good questions to ask, but ultimately, when we die, they're not going to matter. But this is a question that will matter. This is a question that when you die will be of the utmost importance. And so it's important for us to really think through this question that's being asked this morning and the answer that's being given in the psalm. So we have a really short one this morning. Um, but as our custom, let's read through the psalm together, all five verses of it. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Ready? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, theologians and, and biblical historians think this was a psalm that David had originally written uh, for the priest of his day, just to give you kind of some historical context. They were, of course, the ones, the priests being the ones that would have entered into and made sacrifices on behalf of the people. The, these were the people that would have been allowed to enter into the tent of God, right? That was not something at this time 
that was freely open to all. It was restricted to a certain group of people. And so the historians think that this psalm is originally a psalm for the priest, and, and it's something that they would have looked at to qualify themselves to be able to enter into the temple of God. And even amongst the priests, there was only one priest that would go into the Holy of Holies, and even he would only do that once a year, right? So, so this is an important thing that David is talking about when he talks about the qualifications of a priest, because entering into God's presence without being properly prepared could be dangerous. Now, it's, it's important to bring up this little piece because priests were chosen by God. They were already God's chosen priests, right? And, and that's important because this is a psalm that is way more about sanctification than it is salvation. And, and the reason I say that is because when we read what is expected of a person that is going to dwell with God, we should all be left with just one thought. I don't meet these qualifications. I can't do it. If this is what it takes to dwell with God, these, these four verses, these four verses disqualify me. I, I have no hope, I have no chance of being able to ever dwell with God. And if you're sitting there today and you're thinking anything else, Trust me, you are only deceiving yourself. If you're reading that list and going, well, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I, I had no problem. Man, you're just deceiving yourself because none of us have never been guilty of violating one or all of these things in our lives. But the good news this morning is that there's someone that did. There is someone that has lived out perfectly every one of these qualifications that we find in this psalm. Jesus fulfilled every one of these things on the list. And for those of us that put our faith and our trust in him and his finished work, then we too are able to dwell with God because of what he has done, not because of what we can do, but because of what he has done. That's why I say this is a psalm about sanctification more than it is salvation. The, the takeaway for us this morning, the thing that we need to learn first, is that we can't do this. That in and of ourselves, it is impossible for us to do it. We need someone else to do this for us. God, knowing that, sent his son to die in our place, to meet all of these qualifications perfectly, to be able to enter into the tent of God and then be able to throw open the door for those of us who can't do this perfectly to enter in because of what he has done. That is the good news this morning. That's our only hope this morning. And we must be careful of making the same mistake the Pharisees made when they came across a text like this. They took them as the literal means for a person to dwell with God. Well, if I just do these things, then I'm good. If I, if I run through this checklist, then I'm good. And God will accept me. 
Now, when you do that, you put all of the emphasis on salvation upon yourself. You are completely responsible for your salvation. And that would be a dire mistake. Our salvation has always been a free gift from God. He is the one that imparts that salvation to us. Now, with that said, and that in your mind, this psalm is incredibly important in helping us to understand what our sanctification should look like. And I, I, I use this word, but I, I want to make sure you understand. Sanctification is just a, a fancy word for a person, of knowing how a person should live after putting their faith and trust in Jesus, right? You put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done to open the door of the tent and to allow you to enter into his presence. That's salvation. And then that starts a process of sanctification. That starts a process of changing you and conforming you into the image of God, right? That's, that's what sanctification, big long word, but it just means the actions and behaviors of becoming like Christ. And that is something that we start here on earth, and, and it will never be completed here on earth. It will only be completed in God's presence. But that doesn't mean that we don't try. That doesn't mean that we don't strive. That doesn't mean that we don't work towards sanctification. We don't work toward our salvation but we work toward our sanctification. And so the psalmist is laying out before us the qualifications of our sanctification. And I want you to notice about these four verses. Scan them real quick, two through five. They have nothing to do with religion. They're not religious. They're not about a service. They're not about a sacrifice. You notice that? This isn't religious things that God is asking us to do in this psalm to be sanctified. These things are not something that can simply be accomplished on Sunday morning. You can't come here once a week and go, okay, well, I've done my things to be able to enter into the tent and dwell in the tent with God. The, this, this list of things that we're going to look at in this psalm it impacts our daily lives. It's how we live Sunday to Sunday. That's what's important. And when it comes to sanctification, that's what matters. So I want to look at these, th this list. There's, there's like 10 things, but I'm going to summarize them under four headings. I, I think this is probably the best way to, to remember this psalm and to break this psalm up. We're going to look at the, the personal aspect of sanctification. We're going to look at our relational, the, the relational aspect of our sanctification. We're going to look at the heart aspect of our, of our sanctification. And we're going to look at the money aspect of our sanctification. And some people, you know, when you, when you read different theologians and different commentaries on this, they argue that verse 2 is the answer to the question. And that the remaining verses are just examples of what verse 2 lays out. And I, 
I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. But I want to look at each one of these separately. I want to look at each section separately and, and kind of discuss what that means in the life of a Christian trying to be more like Christ. So the first aspect is in our personal life. Verse 2 says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So let's break that verse down into a couple of things. First, we should walk blamelessly, right? That's, that's the first part of that verse. He who walks blamelessly. Now, it's important for you to understand this morning, that doesn't mean sinlessly. That's not the concept that's being put forth there in the Hebrew words that are being used. Instead, what is being portrayed there is there is a sense of honesty and integrity about you. In other words, the person that you are on Sunday morning sitting in this room is the same person you are sitting at work on Tuesday. There's an integrity about you. People don't look at you and go, oh, well, he's one way on Sunday, and man, he's a different person on Friday night at the bar. I mean, he's, right? So, so many churches' witnesses have been destroyed by people who live hypocritical lives, who who put on their clothes and say all the right things on Sunday, but then live like hell the rest of the week. And people look at that and they go, well, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because we're called to live blamelessly. We're called to live a life of integrity where our Monday morning behavior matches our Friday night behavior. This verse echoes... Other verses we find in the Old Testament, like Genesis 6-9, when the Bible speaks of Noah as being blameless. Was Noah sinless? No. No, but he was a man of integrity. Or in Genesis 17-1, when God tells Abraham to be blameless. Again, the concept there isn't sinless. It's being a man of integrity. And likewise, we as believers should have a lifestyle of genuine integrity. Who we are on the inside should match who we portray on the outside. When people really get to know us, when people really get to spend time with us, do those two things line up? Or do they begin to see a disconnect? We, we need to be people of integrity who walk blamelessly. Second, we should do what is right. So when you think about walking blamelessly and, and integrity being an internal thing, right? Now David is pushing us to the external and what happens once it leaves our mind and, and we act in the world. Do we do what is right? Being a person of integrity should naturally lead to actions that are right. James, again, echoes this thought when he says in James 2, 14 through 17, you cannot have faith without works, right? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. This verse reminds us that God is expecting our actions to align with our words, it's not just enough to come and say, we love the Lord, we trust the Lord, 
Do your actions align with that during the week? Do you live a life in fear and anxiety because you don't trust God, but yet you come here on Sunday mornings and say, oh, I trust you, God. And if I was to ask you, oh, yeah, I trust God. But my life, my actions in my life portray something different. Our actions should align with our words and our beliefs. The third and final aspect that we see in this verse is that we speak truth in our hearts. Now this is, this is interesting here. Last week we looked at the psalm that said a fool lies to himself that there is, and says there is no God, right? This is, a, this is a negative example of what we're to do here in this passage. Because that's an example of not speaking the truth to your heart. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's not necessarily saying this is a person running around telling everybody else in the world that there is no God. It's a person who's walking around and living as though there is no God in their own heart. It's what they're telling themselves. They are lying, the Bible says, to themselves. And as believers, we are called to speak the truth about God to our own hearts. This is something that we have to actively do. You want to be sanctified. You want to be more like Christ. You want to be growing in your sanctification. Speak the truth to your heart about who God is. Now, the only way we can do that is by carefully reading and studying God's Word. Right? You, you have to understand who God is. You have to understand who He has revealed Himself to be time and time and time again in His Word. You have to be in the Word. That's the only way to be able to speak truth to your heart consistently. This week I was introduced to a new concept that I'd never heard before and did some research on it, was reading up on it. And, and it was the idea of mental immunity. And the guy's got some crazy ideas, but, but the core of what he was saying really struck me. Because he was saying that our mind has an immune system. And then when our mind gets weak, bad ideas are like viruses that begin to take hold in our brain. And then we begin to believe all kinds of things that aren't true. I hope, man, I really hope, I really hope this doesn't offend you, but I'm going to use what I think is an extreme example that the world is flat. There's a lot of people that believe it's flat and that everything is a conspiracy to make us think that it's a globe and it's round. And again, I hope I don't offend you. But, but I heard this story in, in researching this where this guy, this, this flat earth guy, he dies and he goes to heaven and he gets in and he goes up to God and he's, God says, do you have any questions? And he said, yeah, I got one question. He said, is the earth round or is it flat? And God said, it's round. And the flat earther goes, man, this goes higher than I thought. <laughs> he lost his... He lost his mental immunity. <laughs> right? He no longer had the ability 
to wrestle and weigh out, is this a bad idea or not? The way we as believers do that is by speaking the truth to ourselves about who God is. What was interesting, the, one, of the, one of the ways to help you build your immunity is by having a group of people in your life that could ask you questions about your beliefs and your thoughts. Because just by asking questions, just like the Psalms do over and over and over again, it challenges what you think. It asks, they ask you clarifying questions. Are you sure that the world is flat? Do you really think that it could be hidden? Like, do you, do you really think that? Because we're talking about sinful people. A lot of sinful people have to hold hands and lie together in unison over generations. You, you're saying you believe humanity can do that, right? Questioning those things, having people around you. The opposite, though, is when you get into isolation and you stop talking to people. And, and the, the author of this idea clarified, too, he said it's important that you're talking in person and not online. Because online, we tend to gravitate toward echo chambers who just reaffirm the bad ideas. Rather than sitting down with a group of people regularly who question you. You know, you know what the first thing is? I, I was reading the book, I was thinking, man, community groups. I've never thought about it before, but this is one of the great benefits of a community group. If we're open and honest and we're sharing the things we're wrestling with, you've got a group of people who love you who can ask you some clarifying questions. Hopefully they're not just sitting there going, man, you're stupid, right? Ho hopefully they're like, okay, let, you know, let, let me ask you some questions about this. Like, how did you get here from there, right? And, and that's, that's one of the ways to defend ourselves. But not only should we be speaking the truth about God in our hearts, we should also be speaking the truth about others. We have to be very careful that we don't develop a critical spirit that runs down everyone. That, that seems to be a pretty pervasive spirit in our age right now. There is a general lack of trust for anything and anyone in authority. And whether you realize it or not, that's because you're a product of CRT, critical race theory. You might be fighting against it, but the way you're fighting against it is not a gospel way, but it's a way that aligns with critical race theory. That we can't trust the authority and we got to tear it down. we got to remove it. So we have to think about others and speak truth about others honestly to ourselves. And finally, most importantly, we've got to speak the truth about ourselves to ourselves. We shouldn't be thinking too highly of ourselves, right? Because then we become conceited and prideful and no one can speak to us. No one can question or challenge us because we know everything. You probably met people like that. Keller once said that the key is to walk into a room and to not think too highly of oneself or too lowly of oneself, right? You don't want to depress yourself because you're thinking so badly of yourself. But the key is to just not think of yourself at all. 
To, to walk into a room and go, how can I serve God in this room? Not what do these people think of me? Do they like me? Do they not like me? But how can I serve God in this room with this group of people? Speak truth to yourself. The, the second section, or the second aspect, shows up in our relationships. See that in verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends. The godly person growing in sanctification is, is not slandering others. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here for slander, it also carries the meaning of spying. And this is important because this distinction means that this, that this is something that isn't necessarily happening out in the open, right? Spying, by nature, is deceptive. And, and that's what he's talking about here when he talks about slander, because we can slander people in public, right? But often, where is it done? Behind their backs, in, in closed doors, right? In secret. Growing in our faith should lead us to less and less slander and gossip. Then again, David moves from our words again to our actions. The godly person growing in sanctification does no evil to his neighbor. Right? So it's not just about talking, not talking about your neighbor, but physically not doing anything. Your actions should align with the beliefs. Now, you know, again, the age-old question, who is my neighbor? I would argue that God answers definitively with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anyone that comes into your path during the day, that's your neighbor. And, and as Christians, we should be the kind of people that other people trust because they know we are not going to do evil to them, right? Right? We as believers should be the first person someone calls in the neighborhood and says, hey, let me give you a key to our house. We're going out of town for a week. Because they know you're not going to go throw a party and destroy their house. They know that you're going to take care of their property while they're gone as if they were there. Because over time, as believers, they have seen you not do evil to others. Not just in your words, but also in your actions. Finally, in this verse, the godly person growing in sanctification does not take up a reproach against his friend. As we grow in our faith, we should also be growing in our number of friends and our loyalty to them. We're going to see this over and over and over in the Psalms. It's funny, I've been, I've been thinking about doing a series just on how to be a friend. Because coming out of the pandemic, I just realized most people need help. They just, they just need help in, in how to be a friend. But the more I've been studying the Psalms and reading ahead, it's like, oh, God, God's already addressing that. Because all throughout the Psalms, it talks about friendship and loyalty. And that as believers who are growing in our sanctification, who are walking and trying to be more like Christ, 
we're, we're not going to be taking up a reproach against our friend. We're going to grow in our loyalty to them. The third aspect of sanctification we see in this psalm is our heart in verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who honor the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, the first part of this verse represents two sides of the same coin when it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. As we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in our understanding of God's word and God's character and who he is, then our thoughts and our views should begin to align with his thoughts and his views. And the people that that we look up to and honor are those who fear the Lord. That's who we should be looking up to and honoring. Like who... Who we honor and who we look up to says a lot about our hearts. If there are people in our lives that we are looking up to who are godless people, we should take a pause and ask why. Because perhaps we're worshiping and loving something other than God that these people offer. Whether that's celebrity, financial status, whatever it is. We should love those that God loves. And I know this isn't popular in our culture right now, but we should hate those that God hates. We should find ourselves hating sin. Growing in a discontentment with it. That we are not okay just entertaining it. But we are killing it in our own lives and growing and aligning our thoughts and our views with what God says. As we begin to hate evil, we'll be revolted by those who celebrate evil. The second part of this verse, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now this indeed is a huge test of our faith. Have have you ever found yourself promising someone you would help them only later to be invited to something fun at the same time? Uh, Let me give you a good example, right? You promised your friend you would help them move. And then your buddy calls you and says, hey, I got a free spot on the boat to go fishing the same day. Now you've given your word to your friend that you would help him move. So what do you do? I submit the person who is growing in sanctification, who's growing in their relationship with God, would honor their word, even if it meant them losing something. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes you make a deal and you agree to something that later on you find out, wow, financially, this is going to hurt me. But am I still willing to be a person of my word and go through with it, even though I may experience a financial setback. The Christian growing in sanctification will keep his word and help his friend. And and I want you to think in this moment, again, I'm, I'm focusing on sanctification this morning, 
But the perfect one that met this was Jesus. And, and I think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane when I read this passage and, and what it cost him to follow through with what the Father wanted him to do. The, the agony that he experienced leading up to the cross and the cross itself. And yet, he, he kept his word. He did what he came to do. Again, we, we should be conforming our thoughts and our actions to that model. And then David shifts gears again, and he addresses the fourth and final aspect of sanctification. He who does not put out his money had interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Man, the early church fathers talked a lot about interest and loaning out money. Um, Calvin and Luther both understood the problem with interest was that it, it exploited the poor and it allowed for the, the rich to effortly, effortlessly, ugh, effortlessly, well, that's a fun word to say, to continue to gain wealth without doing anything. And, and they saw that as an evil in society. Um, now, they, they didn't say that all interest was bad, but interest that took advantage of the poor specifically was bad. In other words, when, when you have your brother who is in need, who's, who's destitute, his crops all failed, and he has nothing at that point, and he comes to you and says, hey, loan me enough money to make it through this next season so I can plant another harvest, and then I can begin to pay you back. When you charge that brother interest, it's sinful. And it's evil and it's wrong. But when, when a guy has a field that's producing great and he's looking around going, you know what, if I just had five more fields, I could make five times as much money. And he comes to you and says, hey, this field's doing great. I got a good system. I want to multiply it with five more fields. Will you loan me money? To charge that person interest was not wrong. Do you see the difference? One is taking advantage of a person who is destitute and poor. The other is just charging interest on someone who's trying to make more money. right? So, so they all come up with different rules. Calvin, it was 5% that you could charge. But listen, let me, let me tell you how like, strict they were about this interest thing. If they found out you were charging interest, they would refuse you from communion. You could not partake in the Lord's Supper. Right? They, they were serious about this. Well, one guy said that, that the person who charges interest is the same as those who commit murder. I mean, they, they were serious about this because they saw it as a way of people taking advantage of the poor. And that was the key here. Okay. And, and so as we look at our lives, as we examine our use of money, are, are we free with our money and helping others, specifically those who are poor. Now, you know, again, in our small group last week, we had a long discussion about what's poor in America because it's a little harder sometimes for us in America to identify someone who is truly destitute and poor versus someone who's making five, $600 a week holding up a cardboard sign. It's, diffi it's difficult. And, and listen, we need discernment and we need to wrestle with that, Okay. But we don't need to let that excuse us from never helping the poor. 
And that's kind of where we landed. I, I, I hope that's where everybody landed in the group, is that, is that we, we need to think about that stuff, we need to wrestle with that stuff, but at the end of the day, we still need to help the poor, wherever they may be. And the last part of that verse, does not take a bribe against the innocent. This is, this is something that pretty much everyone condemns, whether you're a Christian or not, right? You know someone is innocent, but somebody pays you to say that they're not. This is one of the most despicable ways we can exist as human beings. And as Christians, above all, we should not be involved in anything like that. Now, most of us aren't going to be offered an envelope full of money to say something or, conversely, to not say something, right? Because sometimes, sometimes you saw what happened and you could speak truth to the situation and some lawyer may come along and say, here, here's, you know, here's some money, sign this non-disclosure agreement, and we're done, right? But, but it's also when we see a person in need and we don't do anything because it's inconvenient for us. That, that can be seen as a form of bribery. Because we, we just want to do what we want to do. And we just want to keep, because getting over that, that's going to be messy. And getting involved with that is going to take time. And I, I just, I don't have that. And so I'm just going to look the other way. And I'm going to pretend like I didn't see that need. I'm going to pretend like it didn't exist for my own benefit, right? How we handle our money says a lot about how we're growing in our sanctification. We've, David has laid out four aspects of, of how we can be growing in our sanctification. This morning, which of these four aspects do you need to grow in? Your personal Relational, your heart, or your money. For those here this morning that don't know Jesus, I hope you see that the standards are too high for any of us to meet. That our only hope is to put our faith and trust in Him and what He has done for us. And for those of us that have put our faith and hope and trust in Him, let me leave you with this question. How is your sanctification going? Are you growing? Are you becoming more like Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for speaking the truth to us in love. And God, I pray that this week we would wrestle with these four aspects of our sanctification, Lord. That we would be honest with ourselves. And, and God, if, if we're unsure, that we would ask others, maybe in our small groups, to, to, to question us and to clarify for us where our hearts are, God. 
so that we might come to a place of confession and repentance and following you afresh this week. God, sanctification is a long, arduous process, God. It's not something that is just going to happen overnight. And God, I pray that you would encourage us this week to continue to run the race, to, to run the marathon that is set before us, God, in becoming more like your son. And for those here this morning, God, that don't know you, I pray this morning they would put their faith and trust in what Jesus has done to be able to enter into this tent and dwell with you. That opens up the opportunity for us as sinners, enemies of you, to follow his example and to follow his lead. And Father, I pray that we would be a church that's marked by these four aspects of sanctification. That, that people would look at us and, and say, these, these people are the same on Sunday as they are throughout the week. And they would say that not because we are religious, because nothing in this passage is religious. They would say it because of the way in which we treat our neighbor and we love them. And we care for them. Day in and day out. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.